Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Horror Hill is brought to you by Upstart, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I'll be back after our first story tonight to tell you a bit more about Upstart. Until then, double-check your doors and windows and settle in. Darkness is coming, and it won't take no for an answer. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow you. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself, if you dare. Come, inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness <laughs> has found you. <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Horror Hill. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. In today's episode, 
courtesy of authors Kevin David Anderson, G.V. Anderson, and Megan J. Meehan, come three bone-chilling tales about graveyard shifts and parasitic companions, and of dreams and deformities. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, without further ado, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Kevin David Anderson. In it, we'll meet Mr. Carver, the head of a company that provides for and manages overnight laborers that aren't afraid of getting their hands... (laughs) dirty. When Carver receives a call complaining of the hired help's unusual hours, he does what he does best. Provide customer service to die for. (laughs) Without further ado, I present to you Third Shift. Alan Carver heard the phone ring in the outer waiting room. He drummed his fingers on his old desk while listening to Helen. His assistant of 13 years answered the phone. Good evening, TM Labor, she said with a raspy voice into the antique rotary phone. Carver was hoping to get through the whole night crisis free, but as he eavesdropped on the conversation, he was beginning to realize that hope was about to be dashed. Within a minute, Helen's cigarette-scarred voice piped in on Carver's intercom. Alan! Irate customer on line one! Think positive! In a year or two, we could have ten lines! (laughs) She replied with her we-are-going-to-be-huge sarcasm. That stopped being funny about ten years ago. So shoot me. I love the classics. Uh, How irate, on a scale of one to ten... Carver hoped for a number between four and five. About a fifteen. Oh, lovely. What's he complaining about? I tell you in his words, but my parents didn't raise me to use that kind of language. Okay, Carver sighed. Give me about thirty seconds. After a brief consideration, he added, Then bring me a scotch. Your wish is my command, master. Helen signed off with a static pop. Alan Carver, TM Labor's district manager for West Coast operations for over 15 years, rolled up his sleeves and got comfortable in his leather chair. Before he was ready, line one rang. Reaching out for the receiver, he glanced at the clock. It was a few ticks before midnight. 
He answered the phone in his best customer service voice. Hello, this is Alan Carver, third shift manager. Mr. Carver, what the hell kind of service are you running? I'm not sure what you're referring to, sir, Carver replied. Your laborers should have started work hours ago. Carver tried to take control of the conversation. Let's back up a bit. Tell me who you are and what property you represent. Oh, great. I have to tell the story over again. Didn't that idiot who answered the phone tell you any of it? We're not going to accomplish anything with insults, sir. Please just tell me who you are and uh, give me your account number if you have it. There was a pause while Carver imagined the man composing himself. My name is David McFarland. I don't have my account number on me. I own the McFarland Winery in Napa Valley. How uh, long have you been a client at TM, Mr. McFarland? This is my third week. Helen walked in with a scotch in one hand. Taking the receiver off his ear, Carver spoke in a more urgent tone to his assistant. I need a customer file on a McFarland winery in Napa Valley. I was about to go on break. What do I pay you for? Carver snapped. Helen put her hands on her hips. The worst coffee ever tasted, frighteningly good looks, and mind-bending conversation. Carver gave Helen an impatient glare. All right, all right, she shrugged. I'll look for the file. She handed him the glass and moved to a file cabinet that looked as if it was a relic from the 1800s. Mr. Carver, are you there? The voice boomed on the other side of line one. Uh, yes, I'm here. I was just looking for your file. Now, what can I help you with? Is the service not what we promised? Um, no. The services so far has been excellent, Mr. McFarlane replied in a grudging tone. Then, uh, what seems to be the problem? There's no one in my vineyard! I can see the field your organization is supposed to work tonight from my bedroom window. I couldn't sleep, so I thought I'd look out on the laborers you were supposed to have in my field, starting at 10 p.m., and it's almost midnight. So where are they? Oh, okay, Carver said. This is a common misunderstanding with our service. All laborers do eight hours of work in less than four hours. We meet the negotiated shift quota in half the time. So our workers don't show up until midnight, and they will be gone by 4 a.m. He took a quick sip of scotch. They've been meeting their quotas for grapes picked, I'm assuming, Mr. McFarland? Yes, they have. Even exceeded it a few times, but why not just have them work the full eight hours of third shift? I could really use the boost in production. Oh, we can't do that, Mr. McFarland. We need the buffer of at least two hours between the end of your second shift and the beginning of your first shift, so that our laborers on third don't run into any of your people. Your sales rep must have explained this to you. Oh, don't give me that. I don't care if you're using illegals to work my field. Do I sound like I'm from immigration? I just want to know, when are they going to start work? As I uh, said, they work your field from 12 a.m. to 4 a.m. and they'll be gone by the time your first shift shows up. I've been in this business for 20 years, McFarland said. And there's just no way 30 pickers could do the amount of work your laborers have been doing in just four hours. And why don't they use any of the field lights? My foreman says your people haven't used the light set up for the second and third shifts. Our laborers have extremely good night vision, and they work faster in the dark, 
Carver wondered if he was saying too much. Helen handed him the customer file. He flipped through it and pulled out a copy of the contract. And what kind of illegal aliens do the work of two men in the dark? Carver cleared his throat. Um, uh, Mr. McFarland, it, it says here in the contract that you hired us to supply no less than 30 laborers to work your field on third shift. We are doing that, I believe. It further states that you'll keep your people away from the designated field for the entire third shift. It also says that you'll not ask the kind of questions you're asking. How the hell do I know what the contract says? It's not even in English. Uh, yes, I know. It's a form of ancient Hebrew. The owner of TM insists on it. Some sort of tradition. Carver sighed. I'll make sure you receive an English translation, but I have no doubt that your sales rep went over all these points. Yeah, he did. It made as much sense then as it does now. Look, if I don't get some straight answers, I'm going to have to cancel our contract. Oh, I don't think you'll do that, Mr. McFarland. It says here that our service is creating a substantial savings for you. McFarland was silent for a moment. Yes, it is. I'd just like some peace of mind, Carver. I want to know who's working my field and when they'll arrive. We're going to stay on this phone until you tell me. Carver sipped his scotch and took a deep breath. What the hell? McFarland didn't seem to be a bad sort. A little insistent, but nothing Carver couldn't handle. Telling him the truth shouldn't matter. It was just business. As long as McFarland was still cutting his costs by using TM, he'd remain a client. They all did. Mr. McFarland, I'll try to shed some light on this for you. What do you know about graveyards? What? Um, to be specific, the history of human internment in cemeteries. Not a lot, but what does bear with me? Thousands of years before cemeteries, when people died, they were taken to a place where their bodies and, more importantly, their life essences could be reclaimed by nature. Animals did the job, mostly. What was left, the elements took care of. Well, this is fascinating stuff, but when the first cemeteries started popping up in human societies, oh, let's say 3000 BC, they didn't cause a problem. The bodies and life essence could still be reclaimed by nature through the ground. The circle of life was not interrupted until we started using coffins. You understand about the circle of life? Yes, McFarland said. I did see the Lion King. Well, good. Carver cleared his throat again. Anyways, the human life force was being trapped inside the coffins, and nature wasn't able to recycle it. So nature, as nature always does, solved the problem. And how did it do that? Over the next few centuries, a new species evolved. One that lived underground and whose sole purpose was to free the decomposing bodies from their prisons. Nature created the gopher to solve that problem. Carver rolled his eyes heavenward. No, Mr. McFarland, nature created something else. Something very few humans ever get to see. Something you don't want to see. They have many names, but only one English word describes them. Have you ever heard of ghouls, Mr. McFarland? Oh, for crying out loud, I've just about had it with this crap. Who's your supervisor? Ghouls are real, Mr. McFarland. They're a relatively young species, evolved for a specific purpose. But they are very real. So, what are you saying? Are you saying you have ghouls working in my fields? Since cremation became more popular, there's been a slow decline of the cemetery business, 
Many ghouls have been displaced and need to find new ways to live. TM Labor has been proudly employing displaced ghouls for nearly half a century. Jesus, that story has so much bullshit I could use it as fertilizer. <sighs> so, what do these ghouls look like? Carver shuddered. Um, ghoul relations really isn't my department, but uh, from the pictures I've seen, uh, well, you trust me, you don't want to know. McFarland snorted. So, when are your imaginary ghouls going to arrive? It's two minutes past midnight, and I haven't heard or seen a single truck. Well, there won't be any trucks. They move underground, and they're very prompt. I'm sure they're in your field right now doing their job as promised. Well, I don't see anybody. I, I don't know how far you live from the field, but I'm sure the vantage point from your bedroom isn't good enough to see anything, especially in the dark. What vantage point? I'm here in the field, where your laborers are supposed to be, and I'm all alone! Carver almost froze. Oh, Jesus. Oh, tell me you're joking. After I saw no activity out here, I got dressed, grabbed my cell phone, and went to investigate. Carver looked at the clock on the wall. It was three minutes past midnight. Christ, McFarlane, get out of there! What's the big deal? McFarlane sounded amused. So I get to glimpse your spooky workforce! Look, McFarland. Carver was beginning to panic. I'll cancel your contract. I'll refund your money. Anything you want. Just, just please, get out of the field! All right, all right, I'm walking out. What's all the urgency? It's part of the deal we made with them, Carver replied, getting his breathing under control. What's part of the deal? That they can have anything they find. Snakes, squirrels, insects, whatever. Have? McFarlane asked. I mean kill and eat! Carver said. If you're trying to scare me, it's not working. I don't care if you're scared, for God's sakes, get out of the field! I'm going, I'm about a hundred yards from the edge. But, uh, I have to tell you, Mr. Carver, I am not happy with the way you've spoken to me, and I'm definite... McFarland broke off. McFarland? Silence. McFarland! Carver stood up as Helen came back into his office. She gazed at Carver, and he could see his panic reflected in her eyes. McFarland, are you there? With a definite tremble in his voice, McFarland finally spoke. Carver, for the love of God, have they seen you? Carver already knew the answer. Oh God, get me out of here, Carver. Carver's mouth went dry. I... I can't. There's nothing. They're all around me. McFarland's voice was just a whimper. Their eyes. Oh, God, what's wrong with their eyes? Carver worked his mouth to wet his tongue. Godspeed, Mr. McFarland, he said, as he held the phone away from his ear. Helen moved forward and depressed the speaker button. Instantly... The office was alive with the sounds of struggle, a voice that tried to scream, but became a choked gagging. Then, with a horrific suddenness, a sharp, grotesque crack echoed in Carver's office, sounding like a tree limb being ripped from its place on the trunk. A faded, gurgling noise bled through the line as Carver returned the receiver 
and disengaged the speaker. He sunk into the chair and ran his fingers through his hair. After a moment of ceremonial silence, Carver said, We're going to need a cleanup crew in Napa. I'm on it, Helen replied, and I'll get some client termination forms. Thanks, Helen. Carver held up his empty glass. And another drink, please. Helen glanced back on her way out. I'll bring you the bottle. Then she closed Carver's door. You've been listening to Third Shift by author Kevin David Anderson, as performed by yours truly. That story brings a whole new meaning to the term graveyard shift. Now, doesn't it? (laughs) Mr. McFarland might regret not reading the fine print in his contract, but look on the bright side. He'll still get to be involved with his company. He's just got to do so now. From the ground up. Up next, I've got another tale for you, my friends. This one from author G.V. Anderson, who has returned to us this week to provide another helping of horror. In tonight's story, however, we're not dealing with the undead or the afterlife. Oh no, 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 this week... We'll meet someone infected with something with a mind of its own, and no intention of letting go, who just might wish they were dead. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, Upstart. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy. Getting out is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully now, there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary leading platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. Possibly the most terrifying thing about the Horror Hill is the credit card bill I racked up buying the studio equipment. In addition to my student loans, had Upstart been available, I might have not spent two years living in fear. Though, of course, I find fear delicious, even on the horror hill that can exist too much of a good thing. What makes Upstart special is that they go beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. They actually reward you, based on your education and job history, in the form of a smarter rate. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. They make it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate, too. Since they do what's called a soft pull, you won't get dinged during the first step of the process, and it won't affect your credit scores to check your rates. And that's great news for those of us that don't need the added hassle. The hard pull, as they call it, only happens if you accept your rate. The best part? Once your upstart loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. That's right, the next day. No waiting for a week or more to start taking control of your finances. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So what are you waiting for? Free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. 
See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with over 300 businesses on Trustpilot. And hurry to upstart.com hill to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com hill. Be sure to use that custom URL to let our sponsors know that I sent you. Thanks so much for listening and for giving Upstart a try this month. Your support means a lot to both of us. Now that I've allowed you to breathe a bit easier and lighten your load, courtesy of our friends at Upstart, allow me to regale you with a tale about something far more frightening than student loans and monthly bills. About an internal invader that wants to get far more out of you than a credit score. Without further ado, from author G.V. Anderson, I present to you... It grows inside. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else. So, finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them, because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. That long kiss, when her tongue parted your teeth and licked the ridges of your hard palate, that's when I slid inside. My tentacles were smaller then, but they'd already taken root deep in your belly by the time you came. I feasted on the afterglow. I still do. Now I fill every limb, every hollow. I am entwined with bone and fibrous spinal cord. I spill over and out, stretching your jaw until it cracks, unspooling wetly down your chest. You watch me emerge in the bathroom mirror. The bulb overhead flickers and buzzes. The wiring's fried. 
you bite down hard, hurt me, force me back inside, and wipe me off your chin. You haven't let me into your head yet. It's the only place I can't go. It's a straight 17-minute walk from your front door to Grosvenor Road, but you take the underpass, where it's darker, and approach from the other end until you find the man you're supposed to meet. He's lurking beneath a broken streetlight. You stuff your hands into the pockets of your hoodie, run a thumb along the jagged edge of your front door key. Sogirio 6? He jumps, says, Grim girl? Even though by knowing his handle you've already identified yourself, I curl around your guts in contempt. Together you duck under the broken chain-link fence beside the underpass and stand in a grassy area littered with takeaway cartons and cider cans. The drone of the motorway above is muted here. The shadows thick. So Girio Six tongues a cigarette from a packet, offers you one. You don't smoke usually, but I think you know it hurts me. I grudgingly retreat below your diaphragm as you lean in for a light. Does it register as a lifting of pressure? My absence? A surge of confidence? He needs a prompt to get started. And with me safely buried in the folds of your entrails, you raise your chin. So, what did you want to tell me? He pinches his cigarette between thumb and forefinger and exhales, the nicotine mingling with the sweeter, native smell of his mouth. I don't know. You even gonna believe me? Yeah, I'll believe you. Cause I went to the police and they just laughed. You fluck ash onto the grass as if you couldn't care less, but your pulse is thumping all around me like a baseline. You went to the police? It's fucked up, man. You've lost weeks to the conspiracy forums and message boards dedicated to what I am. What I could be. Mostly you've dismissed the stories, but a handful of accounts, like Sagirio Sixes, are too similar to your own to ignore. An alien parasite you can't purge, rippling under your skin as something fills the gaps between your bones. Insatiable hunger, because you're eating for two. But even after integrating yourself into their wider community and later earning a place in private chat rooms and channels, they won't talk openly. So Gerio 6 caught a train specially to meet you, to make sure there'd be no trace of your conversation. And yet he's still hedging. You step closer to him. You're taller, older. Tell me. Before he can start, he clutches the chain-link fence and heaves. The spasm is slow and controlled, like a wave. And when it reaches his head, three or four unformed tentacles sprout from his mouth, testing the air. He chokes on them, blinking back tears. My cousin looks newly planted. Its tentacles are as undefined as a newborn's fists. But Sagirio Six has been messaging you for a week at least. For some reason, it has not taken root properly. Its host may not experience the hunger, but the constant roving as my cousin searches for a place to settle? The impulse, and yet the inability in this atmosphere to eject, and the sure knowledge of the starvation to come? Death would be a mercy. 
I can't communicate any of this to you. I'm sorry. As you tease out the last of Sogirio Six's account, the girl from the club with a queen in her gut, rumored to be sowing seeds in a city up north, I twist into position and punch up via your esophagus. Only my largest tentacle can cover the distance to Sogirio Six, but it's wide enough to hurt, to compress your trachea, so I must be quick. I thrust out from your mouth, through and out the back of Sagirio Six's head, skewering his brain, then retract and stab again at his abdomen where I hope my cousin nestles. My girth muffles your scream at least. I withdraw in time to avoid a thin stream of bile which you cough up onto the grass. Oh my god. What did you do? I'm spreading inside you like a splayed hand inside a puppet. Massaging. Soothing. I don't like your fear. I don't like the clenching. The cold. The erratic pulse. I'm sorry. It was a kindness to both of them. And you got what you wanted, didn't you? How to find the girl who imparted me? I waited that long for your sake. But of course, you can't hear any of this. My attempts to calm must translate to something uncomfortable like a cramp or nausea. So I stop. You didn't have to kill him! You punch your own stomach, jostling me. He didn't do anything! His blood is seeping through the grass towards you, coloring the toes of your trainers. Stepping back, you turn at the sound of footsteps in the underpass. Two men on the way home from the pub, more than a little drunk. Your legs start to shake. You go to throw the cigarette away, then stop. The filter is dark with lipstick. It's proof that you were here. You stub it out on your soul and crumple the butt into your pocket instead. Then grab the front of Sogirio Six's jacket, turning your head away from his face and the ragged hole I bored through it. By the time the two men pass the chain-link fence, you've dragged the body into the shadows. There's nothing you can do about the bloody trail in the grass, but you pull your sleeve over the heel of your palm and start rubbing at Sogirio Six's jacket. I think you're scared about fingerprints. Now, you're checking the tread of your trainers... They're worn almost smooth with age, but even that's a clue. You dump them in someone's bin and walk home in your socks. Someone finds him the next day. It's all over the news. Matthew Wellen, 19. Police can't connect him to the underpass. Not yet. But by then you're 50 miles away on a cheap city-bound coach. The train would have been faster, but you don't dare use your card. The transaction would look suspicious. Unless you have no family or current employer to report you missing. A few friends left over from college and old jobs, perhaps. But contact is infrequent. You nibble at the skin around your thumbnail and wonder how this can feel so normal. What's wrong with you? Is it this... thing... in your stomach? Is that why you feel dead inside? These are your thoughts, aren't they? They drop from your mind like pearls, like milky tears. They're far more potent than the first orgasm, that first meal. I savor them and reach up for more. No, 
I say. You're just in shock. You're tense. Please don't shut me out. You're tired and hungry. You have no one else to talk to. The man in the seat next to you has earphones in and keeps slapping his thighs rhythmically. It annoys me, too. Tentatively, you think about the autopsy and what will happen when they find the foreign matter in Matthew Sagirio Six's abdomen. Will they identify it? What do you want it to be? Is he even dead? Yes. I believe my cousin is dead. When I stab Matthew Sagirio Six in the stomach, its final tremor has traveled along the length of my tentacle. Our remains are quickly absorbed by our hosts. But then... Your kind is new to me. I cannot say for sure. You focus on the countryside and the suburbs flying past, distant again. When the coach rolls into the city terminal, you grab the rucksack at your feet. So light. So few possessions. And head into the grungy club district so like the one back home. At night, when you're high, neon cursive always reminds you of sparkles on the 5th of November, the glowing afterburn of your name in the dark, the music that drives your sticky, sour body into the crowd, helps you forget how long it's been since you touched someone else's skin. More thoughts. More delicious thoughts. You suddenly smack your own head. The pedestrians nearby flinch. Stop reading my mind. I can't help it. I am become you. How can I make you understand that you need never be alone anymore? You scoff down an all-day full English breakfast in a tiny cafe. That's the last of your change. It's card or nothing now. As soon as you buy your next meal, they'll know where you are. Matthew Sagirio Six's face appears on the television... The police have already found your bloody trainers. It's still early. The surrounding tower blocks are tipped with orange. The streets are quiet. You find a place to swap your shoes and stash your bag, and the nightclub bouncers starting their shifts wave you right in. You flow from one empty dive to another where entry's free. Then you start climbing in through toilet windows or paying with notes lifted from wallets while their owners wait to be served at the bar. People buy you drinks, which you neck to dull the panic. You pick at the bowls of free pork scratchings. They just make you thirstier. It's late when you see her. Late enough for vomiting in the same cubicle as a stranger. For men with smeared bloody noses. For every third warm body to try slipping you ecstasy on their tongue. Which you finally take. Because you're fucking exhausted. Did you really do this every weekend when you were young? She's more beautiful than you remember. Her hair is mint green, with an undercut over her right ear. Her stubble and roots are black. She's leaning against the back wall, watching, tapping her heel to the beat. And you swear you can hear the sharp click, 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 lurking beneath everything else like a metronome quietly marking time. As for me, I can smell the queen inside her. It writhes in recognition of its own, barely disturbing the drape of her camisole. She smiles as you approach, and in the space between the beats you ask, 
What are we? There's a rented room upstairs where she shows you the truth. The queen seeps out of every orifice. A slick tentacle even comes questing from beneath her skirt until it's impossible to tell where human ends and horror begins. You were so lonely before we came. Your bedset was your world, your computer screen the only window. It was safer that way, harder to get hurt, but it made other people impossible to reach. Real connections don't work like earphone jacks, but you see, we are all connected. You have cousins now who'll shelter you, feed you, and more join us every day. Soon, your part in Matthew Segirio 6's death won't matter. The police won't exist. You're safe. I wind like bindweed up your spinal cord to tickle the base of your skull. You're already so close to letting me in. We'll be greater together than we ever were apart. And crying. Caught in the web of tentacles in this tiny room, you ask me if you'll still be in control. Be conscious. Be yourself. I hate to lie, but all I can say is yes. Yes, my love. Yes. You've been listening to It Grows Inside by author G.V. Anderson as performed by yours truly. And you thought the reports about coronavirus were scary. I don't know about you, but I would much rather deal with a virus with a chance of killing me than a parasite planning to keep me alive while it wears me like a puppet. Don't forget to wash your hands, listener. It won't keep the aliens from devouring your insides, but at least you'll taste better when they do. Up next, I've got one final round of frightening fiction to share with you. This one from author Megan J. Meehan. In it, we'll meet Amber. A young woman determined to be anything other than ordinary sets her sights on a deformed doll she finds at a local curiosity shop. Shortly thereafter... Her already weird world takes an even stranger turn, as she's led to discover the true nature of her unusual acquisition and its harrowing history. Without further ado, I present to you... Oddity. There was nothing strange about Amber. She wasn't too tall or too short. She was of average height and weight. She wasn't ugly, but she wasn't pretty either. And her grades, although passing, were never top marks. She lived in an average house, with an average family, in an average town. Her father worked an average job in insurance, and her mother sold Avon to other average housewives. They drove an average Toyota and listened to average music. Everything about her childhood had been bland, stable, and entirely average. 
That was why Amber strove so hard to be different. When she was three, she pitched dramatic tantrums in stores to get attention. When she was five, she delighted in wandering away from her parents so she could hide and watch them panic. She discovered heavy metal at six, black nail polish at eight, and the occult at ten. She first dyed her mouse-brown hair jet black at the tender age of eleven. By thirteen, she had gotten several ear piercings, and by fourteen, she also had a nose, tongue, and belly button ring. By use of a fake ID, she got her first tattoo, a skull reclining on a red rose, when she was fifteen. Morbidity fascinated her. She ritualistically wore black clothes and black makeup, with the exception of her penchant for dark red lipstick, and stared down anyone who dared to shoot her a dirty look. Amber's straight-laced parents were mortified by her appearance, as were most of their very clean-cut neighbors. Yet they were even more horrified by her attitude and behavior. They could not understand why she was so interested in misfortune and they urged her to be thankful for her good health and stable life. Such suggestions enraged her. Throughout her teens, she drank, she smoked, she skipped school, and stayed out late. Sometimes she even ran away. On three separate occasions, the local police had brought her home. After finding her passed out on a park bench, or fighting at the mall, or hanging out with the other cut-ups, worst of all, she liked the wrong kind of boys. Amber was no Miss America, but she knew how to flirt, and she had no trouble attracting men who liked her particular brand of sexy. Specifically, Amber was into musicians. Any guy who had cool hair, a loud band, and a bad attitude was just her kind of man. In her mid-teens, she had switched boyfriends frequently, quickly tiring of each one bored by their inability to provide the kind of exceptional and exciting lifestyle that she so craved. Then, when she was 19, she met Jackson. Jackson was three years older than her and ten times poorer. Yet, she envied him. Because, despite growing up with next to nothing, he had what she always wanted, an abnormal childhood. Jackson had been raised on the carnival circuit and had traveled from place to place with no formal schooling and little respect for authority. She had met him at a rock concert when his fledgling band, known as Bloody Scum, was opening for an equally eloquently named group, Spitzbewers. While standing at the edge of a mosh pit, she had admired his drumming skills. Yet, she only decided to cozy up to him after she watched the group's grand finale which involved Jackson repeatedly slamming his head down on the cymbals. Any guy who did that was hardcore, and Amber liked hardcore guys. Jackson rode a motorcycle, drank like a mick, cursed like a sailor, and disregarded every rule known to man. He had even been arrested for disorderly conduct a few times. Bailing him out gave Amber the hearts. He was wild, nearly feral, but he was also considerably less intelligent than she was, thereby making him much easier to manipulate. Another trait that Amber liked in her men. Jackson was a certified redneck and he could be as mean as poison when he drank, but Amber gave as good as she got. They fought constantly, but after they smacked each other up good and plenty, the quality of the makeup sex was worth every punch, every kick, and every bite. 
For nearly three years, things were good. Or what qualified as good in their very untraditional, totally non-average relationship. Until Jackson discovered OxyContin. But then his band had broken up, and he had gone back to his family in the Floridian carnival circuit, taking Amber with him. By that point, she had graduated from groupie to girlfriend, and she was downright ecstatic to join the carnival, feeling right at home amid the tattooed carnies and pink-haired ticket-takers. The show even had some genuine freaks, fat ladies, bearded ladies, and contortionists amongst them. Jackson even admitted that his late great-uncle had been part of the sideshow, courtesy of having been born with a parasitic twin growing out of his back. This tidbit of family history was what really made Jackson sexy in Amber's eyes. For a girl who desired difference, a guy with freaky genes was the creme de la creme. Although Jackson's family was less than impressed by Amber, they begrudgingly came to accept her, in part because she could curse better than any of them, which was a highly esteemed skill in their circle. She was also pretty good at reading palms, tarot cards, and tea leaves. She had yearned to polish her skills, but the ancient fortune teller was a shriveled old hag who delighted in being a complete bitch to everyone. Had that attitude not extended to include her, Amber might have admired it. Despite such early tensions, Amber was starting to settle in, really getting with the groove of the nomadic lifestyle, when Jackson had started popping pills. It began insidiously. He was depressed by the failure of his band and, on the road, the cure for depression was often found at the bottom of a bottle. A bottle of pills, in Jackson's case. He went through periods of agitation, followed by days when he was completely lethargic. Their fights increased. His family blamed her. And after the police were called in to break up one particularly bad row, Amber packed up her things and moved back north. By then, she was 22 and hadn't spoken to her parents in over four years. Instead, she crashed in a small apartment with her friend Laura and didn't even bother to tell her family that she was living less than an hour away from them. Her stomach was already wrenched enough due to the stress and tension. That was when things got weird. I want to see if you have any more rodent skulls. That sentence instigated the trip to Vera's vintage. Amber had been playing roommate to Laura for barely a week, and she was already in the mood to redecorate. Laura's apartment was small and cramped, but it didn't need to be anywhere near as bare as it was. Laura worked nights, stripping under the moniker Lithium, and she slept in nearly every day, leaving her with little desire to make an effort to search for home goods. Amber, unemployed and insanely bored, was desperate to add some flair to her surroundings, and Vera's vintage was the ideal location, since it carried some seriously strange, even sinister, items. Oh, go yourself, you weirdo bitch. Laura half whined, half yawned, making no gesture to rise from her nest of bedsheets. Look who's talking, trashy hoe. Amber retorted, and leaned down to flick Lara's nose. Abusive bantering was part of their bond. It seemed strange, but both women liked strange things. Seriously, it's almost 4 p.m. It's open until 5. If you get your ass up now, we can make it and maybe I won't go insane and slaughter the both of us. 
Laura buried her face deeper into the pillows, but she was noticeably more awake than she had been a minute earlier. Oh, I've been working all night. Amber had briefly considered joining Laura as a stripper using the moniker Morphine, but she was too flat-chested for it and deathly scared of needles, so plastic surgery was out of the question. Please? Maybe I'll think about it. Just go out of my room if you want me to get dressed. Oh, like I haven't seen tits and ass before. <sighs> Lesbian. <laughs> Prude. They both started giggling, and that sealed the deal. They were going to go to the store. It was pretty remarkable that they got along so well, especially since Amber liked so few people. She had been called cold and callous, attention-seeking, argumentative, a user. Jackson's aunt had even suggested that she was a sociopath, which Amber regarded as a compliment, even though she was fairly certain that it had been meant as an insult. Part of the reason that Amber and Laura got along so well was that they were practically duplicates. Two goth chicks in their early twenties, who hated normalcy, loved rough boys and horror movies, and were fascinated by all things dark and weird. They had met when they were 18 and working at an alternative bookstore. They bonded over volumes on the occult and freak show history. Truthfully, they also bonded whilst parading around town together, looking like two witches heading to a conference on black magic. Plus, Laura had a car, as old and decrepit as it was, it got them from point A to point B. Amber appreciated that bonus. She wouldn't be caught dead taking the bus. Public transportation was just so... common. Once in the car, they blasted their self-proclaimed anthem, Black Number One by Typo Negative, all the way through town, giggling at the looks of suspicion and scorn that they garnered from every granny and soccer mom that they passed and subsequently decided to play Nine Inch Nails closer on the way home. Vera's Vintage was a dumpy little corner shop that's basement expanded into a sprawling labyrinth of nicks and necks. The owner, Vera, considered herself to be a psychic medium, and she never looked twice at Amber's dark appearance. If anything, she seemed more startled by Lara, who was a rare goth blonde. It had been over a year since Amber had stepped foot into the store and was instantly elated by its musty aroma. Thrift shops were akin to comfort food for her, a treasure chest of nostalgia. As a kid, she had messed with her parents by buying old weird antiques, like taxidermy busts and books of potions, and decorated her room, sometimes the house, with them. She had learned that the best way to navigate a thrift shop was to search the top and bottom shelves, since those nooks and crannies were where the coolest items were left to rot, overlooked. Most of the things for sale were the standard junkie fare, ancient trinkets that kinless spinsters had left behind. She had almost given up on finding anything worthwhile when a taxidermy owl caught her eye. When she reached up to grasp it, she accidentally knocked over an unremarkable cardboard box beside it which contained the most remarkable collection of items that Amber had ever seen. Freaks, deformities, oddities. The box was filled with stuff from old-time sideshows, mostly photos, four-legged girls, men with tails, bearded ladies, pinheads, conjoined twins. Some of them Amber recognized. 
She had been obsessed with freaks since grade school, and she knew Pip and Flip, Myrtle Cobain, and Stephen Bobrowski on sight. The camel girl, the elephant man, and the ape woman all had been popular attractions in their day, yet the box contained other images that she hadn't seen before. A two-faced man, a boy with an eye embedded in his forehead, a woman with horns sprouting from her neck. Amber's hands shook with excitement as she rooted through the box. The photographs were obviously authentic and probably ranged from the 1860s to the 1940s, the golden age of freak shows. That was when she found the doll. It was an ugly old thing, yet Amber's hands grasped it eagerly. It was made of a material as coarse as burlap, and while it was probably originally white, it was now frayed and dirty. Oddly, its stringy black hair was surprisingly smooth, probably hoarse, or maybe human. Tattered and featureless, the doll would have been completely unremarkable if not for the strange lump on its side. Unlike lumps caused by misshapen stuffing, this one was stitched into the doll intentionally, as if a tumor was growing from within it. Someone did this on purpose, Amber thought. She immediately understood that she had to have it. She took the box to the front of the store, preparing to haggle for a good price. I'll just get the doll if I don't have enough for everything, Amber thought, and she would slip the doll into her back pocket and walk away with it if need be. She had never wanted anything as badly as she wanted that weird, creepy, deformed doll. Vera didn't haggle about price. In fact, she sold everything for $5, seemingly happy to be rid of it. Laura wasn't nearly as impressed. Why do you want that? She asked, wrinkling her nose in disgust at the sight of the doll. It's cool. Check out these photos. I think some of them are from Coney Island back in its heyday. Seriously? Yeah. We gotta take a road trip there sometime. Undisputed. The history of Coney Island was something that Amber and Laura were fascinated by, along with films like Freaks and the photography of Diane Arbus. Amber eagerly leafed through every image, hoping that one would be such a snapshot. But none of the photos looked like the work of Diana Arbus. They looked more like images that were intended to be used for postcards and newspapers, icons of the freaks that the non-deformed could ogle at long after they left the show. One particular photo commanded Amber's attention. It depicted a little girl of nine or so, staring sadly into the camera. She was naked from the waist up and had a huge lump on her side, a lump that had visible arms and legs. Shriveled and half-formed, but arms and legs nonetheless. Amber turned the coarse yellowed paper over. Opal and Pearl was scripted on their back in browning aged ink. They're parasitic twins, Amber squealed gleefully. Isn't that awesome? Laura glanced at the photo and squirmed. Gross. Parasitic twins are my favorite kinds of freaks, Amber continued, ignoring Laura's reaction. I bet this was their doll. You think some store sold dolls like that? Laura exclaimed, unable to veil her shock. Amber rolled her eyes. No, dummy, this is obviously homemade. Someone stitched this doll to make it look like that girl. Someone must have really loved her to do that, 
with an audible edge in her tone. Laura had a horrible relationship with her parents, and she resented anyone who had been even remotely cared for as a child, including the deformed little freak in the photo, who had undoubtedly died decades earlier. When they got home, Amber leaned the doll against the lamp on her nightstand and reached for an aspirin. She was starting to feel queasy again. I hope this isn't the flu, she thought. Without insurance, antibiotics would cost a fortune. Yet the queasiness passed, and she and Laura spent a pleasant evening eating ramen noodles and watching Paranormal Witness reruns. The weird shit started at 2.43. She was vividly dreaming. A tall man in a top hat and a fancy coat is standing at the foot of a grand stone staircase, beckoning to her. There's something unnerving about him. Unnatural, but alluring. She steps closer and closer, and when she gets near him, she sees that his face is made of nothing but burlap. He reaches for her, urging her to ascend the stairs towards a regal-looking brick building. Amber awoke with a start, keenly aware that shadowy figures were moving around her room. She could see them out of the corners of her eyes, but no matter how swiftly she swiveled her head... She couldn't focus on them. Uttering a little scream of surprise, she switched on her bedroom light. The ragdoll stared back at her, neither accusing nor sympathetic. Fuck, Amber said aloud and immediately felt a deep, aching sense of loss. She missed Jackson. If he was lying next to her, she'd be able to cuddle up beside him and sleep. Junkie or not, he made her feel safe, secure, and sexy. She missed being desired. She switched off the light and burrowed back under the sheets, unwilling to let her imagination turn her into a hysteric. Her stomach lurched and she wondered if she had a tapeworm, a big fat one, like the kind she sometimes saw in tequila bottles. It was a possibility. She was always hungry no matter how much she ate, and yet her stomach still complained. She also felt bloated, but had a weird craving for fried onions, which was beyond strange because she normally hated them. She even forbade Jackson from eating them near her. He loved the damn things. Maybe the worm is missing him too, she thought, and felt another pang of loss. The room suddenly seemed very warm. Amber kicked off the comforter, but still felt like she was sweltering, roasting and queasy. An all-new low, she thought, as she begrudgingly rose from the bed and walked over to the window. The evening was chilly. A cool breeze blew forth from the lake directly across from Lara's apartment complex. I'll open the window wider. That'll get me cooled off enough to sleep. There was someone standing by the edge of the water. It was a little girl in a white dress, illuminated by moonlight. Her eyes were as black as her hair. Then, Amber noticed something incredibly strange. Impossible, even. Although there was only one girl standing by the waterside, the reflection showed two. A duplicate. So precise that it could only be an identical twin. The little girl on the water's edge beckoned to Amber and her twin water reflections mimicked the gesture. A triple threat. 
Amber screamed. Laura burst into the room within seconds. Amber pointed out the window and babbled about the figure, but when Laura looked, there was nothing to see but the water, reeds, and distant trees. You are crackers, my dear bitch, Laura opined, but she did agree to stay in the room that night so Amber was eventually able to descend into a deep and thankfully dreamless sleep. Three days later, a pregnancy test came back positive. She had bought it on a whim after her bouts of morning sickness weren't responding to Tylenol. She hadn't believed it at first, but when three others came back likewise, she begrudgingly accepted the situation. She was likely one month pregnant. The dates worked out, although she was surprised that Jackson still had such virility given his newfound pill habit. Laura saw immediate opportunities given the circumstances. You can totally get him on child support, she said. Unless he ODs and dies first, Amber muttered, staring miserably down at the hateful blue line. So? Then his family will pay. Carney freaks or not, they make steady money running the circuit, right? True, Amber agreed. You know, for someone who's never been knocked up, you've got this whole baby daddy thing well thought out. Laura shrugged. I know a lot of girls who make good money from having kids. You'll be able to get welfare way easier now, and you can feel free to stay with me. That money will come in handy. I can stay here. Good. That was comforting. The last thing Amber wanted to do was admit to her parents that they had a grandkid. They would almost certainly try to remove it from her care, and that would be the end of any money to be had. It was a fucked up situation, but if she could make a payout from it, she wasn't one to complain. People like her took what they could get. After a few moments of silence, Laura asked, Do you think it's a boy or a girl? Amber shrugged. Doesn't matter. You should get a sonogram. No! Amber practically shouted, glaring icily at her friend. No doctors. You know I can't stand hospitals. Those places are just fancy slaughterhouses. Um, all pregnant women see doctors. You can even get a free care. I don't need it. I am not going to a hospital. If I can pop this kid out right here, I swear I will. No way, Laura replied, horrified. Do you have any idea how disgusting that would be? Birth is akin to pure gore. Yeah, well, anything's better than needles. Besides... Women gave birth at home for centuries before there was medicine and the human race survived. Plus, the women in my family always have easy births and healthy kids. It'll be fine. And if it's not? If I start bleeding to death during a breached birth in the bathtub, you have my permission to call 911. Thanks for that lovely image, Mommy. The weeks went on, and as Amber's stomach grew, the dreams intensified. In them, she was always in a crowded place. Sometimes it was a big building, and other times it was a tattered tent. But there were always people catcalling and screaming. Some were well-dressed. Others looked like bums. But they were from a long time ago. Their clothes and hairstyles conveyed an era long past. The dreams came every night, and showed Amber more and more. A tall man in a top hat and tails... A caller always stood outside, enticing people. The rubes, 
to come in, and those very crowds were always amused, but also shocked, even horrified, as they pointed and stared at a stage. Amber always awoke before she could see what was on display, but on more than one occasion, she opened her eyes to find the odd little doll resting on her tummy, as if embracing the life that was growing inside of it. In the sixth month of her pregnancy, Amber's dreams finally allowed her to see the little girl was being exhibited on the stage. A little girl who had a much tinier, half-formed body, two arms, a torso, and two legs hanging from her side. Her clothes had even been tailor-made to fit her odd anatomy. Amber instantly recognized her as the little girl from the photo in the thrift store box the doll's original owner. As soon as Amber looked upon her, the girl stared back. Her gaze was fiery and unforgiving. Seemingly oblivious to the rest of the crowd, she pointed at Amber's belly with all four of her arms and sang the word, Mommy. Amber woke sweating profusely. Pain seared her belly and she rolled onto her side. As she did, she uttered a scream of surprise. The little rag doll was twirling around on the bedroom floor, dancing as if in a ballet. Amber blinked hard and then saw that the doll was simply lying on the floor, somehow staring at her, in spite of its lack of eyes. Despite the unsettling dreams and odd waking moments, Amber continued onwards with her regular routine. She continued to crave fried onions and jam out to bands like Kitty, Rob Zombie, and Soil. She also continued to smoke and drink, figuring a kid with fetal alcohol syndrome could get her disability benefits. You better be careful, Lara warned. If you keep smoking and drinking after Junior's born, those bastards from social services will pay you a visit. Amber sneered. And do what? Take the little brat? Come on, foster care kits cost the state money, and in lieu of the Great Recession, the government likes to save money. They cut corners wherever possible. Letting some white trash rug rat fall under the radar is the norm. Besides, I could always say I'm a Christian scientist or something, and I can't do all that medical shit. At least I'll be a cool mom, which is more than I can say from my folks. When are you going to tell Jackson? Soon. Truthfully... She had decided to tell Jackson about the baby after it was born, provided that Jackson was still in the land of the living. The dreams kept on, frequently following her into her waking moments. Sometimes she'd open her eyes to see the doll coming towards her, life-sized, as if in the form of a grown woman, reaching towards her, groping at her. Other times it was the girl with the misshapen body who she awoke to, standing at the foot of the bed, sometimes weeping, sometimes glaring. It was unnerving, but the apparitions always vanished within a few seconds. Amber supposed that she might be losing her mind, but being crazy was better than being boring, so she tolerated her circumstances. One day when Amber was eight months pregnant, she awoke to the sound of Lara screaming, Amber willed her cumbersome body up and lumbered into the living room to find Lara shaking badly and pointing at the change dish. Why did you put that out here? 
she shrieked. The little doll was sitting in the dish with coins stacked up all around it. Amber hadn't put it out there, nor had she any idea how it had gotten there. She suspected that the doll had a mind of its own. Possession, either demonic or ghostly, was the ultimate in interesting, and thereby piqued Amber's curiosity. She decided to uncover the origins of the doll, beginning with the history of Opal, the deformed child who she believed it had initially belonged to. Opal's life did not have abundant records like those of many other freaks, but diligent googling eventually revealed the whole strange, sad story. Opal Pearson was born on February 9th, 1908 in Pennsylvania, to impoverished farmers Gemma and Tobias Pearson. Gemma was widely regarded as being an oddball around her village, so no one was overly surprised when Opal emerged from her womb, entwined with a malformed twin, Pearl. Some people believe that Gemma, who was rumored to have dabbled in witchcraft, had cast a spell over her womb, willing her child to be born malformed. Certainly, Gemma instantly saw the means of making money out of her baby's physical misfortune and quickly exhibiting her deformed child, or children, off to her neighbors for a penny a peak, or food, or fabric, whatever they had to give. Tobias was horrified by his wife's behavior, but was seemingly powerless to stop it. He fell into a deep depression and died nine months after the birth of his firstborn, or borns. Rumors were whispered that he had been poisoned. Gemma reportedly kept great quantities of arsenic around their shabby home, allegedly to deal with an ongoing rat problem. Gemma started showing her odd little child, or children, off to circuses and even museums. Amber recognized the large stone building from her dreams as the Smithsonian. Throughout the duration of her childhood, Opal and Pearl were touted around the country, being mocked by crowds, or laughed at, or feared. Gemma, raking in the cash, didn't seem moved by her daughter's unhappiness. Aside from Taylor making the misshapen little doll for her, Gemma showed little love for the being which she had birthed. When Opal was 15, she was touring around with Siegfried's Circus, a second-rate sideshow that just so happened to be the home of Merv Gilman, more commonly known as Ratman. Merv was famous for having a tail, and... Although he was 23 years older than Opal, Gemma immediately seized upon the ultimate publicity stunt. She arranged to have Opal marry Merv in a grand hoopla ceremony that was open to the public for a fee. In fact, over the course of a year, Opal and Merv got married in several different states, with new guests at every show. Opal and Merv were wed only 14 months before her death. According to the records, her demise was the result of accidental drowning. After Opal's untimely departure, Merv continued touring with the troupe, but Gemma was quickly cut out of the show business lifestyle. She lived another 15 years, desperately trying to hang on to the carny way of life, even by performing meager duties such as selling tickets and making popcorn before succumbing to alcoholism. She died whilst living in a flophouse destitute, likely with nothing but the doll and some pictures left to hold on to. Knowing Opal's history made Amber feel closer to her memory, 
and also envious. She had lived a life of exception, a life devoid of normalcy and filled with excitement, just the kind of life Amber had always wanted. The final dream was the most vivid. Amber had gone to bed tired, sore, and swollen, three days past her due date. She had lain down, sure that sleep would be fleeting, but instead fell into a remarkably deep slumber. The dream started like all the others. It was the 1920s, and she was at the freak show, except this time, she was on stage. People were pointing at her, staring at her, screaming, laughing, ogling. She was the freak. This is what it felt like, and surprisingly, it didn't feel good. Suddenly, the scene jumped to a tiny bedroom. Amber, or Opal, as she seemed to be, was sitting on a bed. A tall, raven-haired woman, Gemma, handed her a glass. Drink this. It will help you relax. The dream skipped again, and suddenly she was lying flat, naked, and unable to budge as an older man, Merv, moved atop her, sweating and panting and thrusting, raping her. Opal tried to scream, to beg him to stop. Their marriage was a sham. She was too young, and the pain, the searing, unbearable pain. Yet she couldn't move. Her mother had drugged her. Seemingly the driving force behind this non-consensual consummation of the marriage of the freaks. The dream skipped again. Now Opal was standing on the ledge of a tall stone bridge. It was nightfall, and she could both hear the water below and see it reflected in the moonlight. She had snuck out of her sleeping quarters and was dressed in her fine white nightgown, the one she had gotten in New York. Her hands caressed her belly, which was hard and firm, swelling in a rounded way that could only indicate the early stages of pregnancy. Her mother was pleased about the child. It was her will for Opal and Pearl and Merv to welcome a baby into the world. It'll be a real stunner, Gemma had crooned to her sobbing daughter in the day that the doctor had confirmed her condition. Surely it'll be an instant crowd-pleaser. Perhaps it'll have both a twin and a tail. Your freakish brood will make us a fortune. Then she had laughed in her hard, cawing, witch-like way. But Opal hadn't laughed since she saw no humor in the circumstances. She hated her life. She detested her mother and her husband and the whole sideshow business. She couldn't imagine subjecting an innocent life to it. Death was the most merciful option. And so, Opal jumped off the bridge and hurtled downwards, taking her parasitic sister unborn child and mother's ambitions with her. Amber awoke right before she, Opal, hit the water. She was shaking and had a coppery taste in her mouth. That was no dream. They were her memories. It was some kind of flat. There was a woman hovering over her bed. She was shriveled and sharp-featured with dark hair and tattered clothes. Undoubtedly the spirit of Gemma 
A clear vision suddenly formed in Amber's mind. Gemma, right before she died, poor and mostly insane, pulling her hair out and using it to fill the ragdoll's thinning locks. Gemma, who had practiced witchcraft and surely knew exactly how to attach herself to such an object, therefore living on in spirit long after her body died. Before Amber could move or utter a sound, the spirit reached down and rubbed her exposed belly as if it were a crystal ball. You're going to get what you always wanted, she crackled. With that said, the labor pain started. They were stronger than Amber had expected and far more painful. Although she had fully intended to give birth in the house, her wails of agony quickly frightened Laura into calling an ambulance. Amber was rushed to the hospital, where she gave birth slightly over eight hours later. The condition was rare in modern times, at least in first world countries. The doctor said that Amber's daughter, or daughters, was the first parasitic twin they had ever seen outside of a medical book. Although one twin was little more than a spine, an arm, and two limp legs, Amber decided to name it. And so, she became the mother of Crystal and Jade. The doctor said it didn't have to be this way. They said they could surgically remove Jade and let Crystal lead a normal life. But Amber would have none of it. Normalcy was a far worse fate. Oh no... This, maybe, would bring flavor to the world. Difference. Laura was mortified. I told you to get a sonogram, she babbled. You could have seen it. You could have done something. But Amber wasn't nearly as concerned. She assumed that Jackson's family would be amused, maybe even downright pleased. After all, such occurrences were in his genes. You're not serious about the freak show, right? Laura asked a few weeks later as Amber packed up to visit Jackson. I mean, you're not really going to show the kid off for cash, are you? Try me. Amber replied as she placed the old rag doll in the car seat where it lay against the soft skin of her sleeping offspring. She had long since surmised that the spirits in the doll had sensed the differences in her babies and had purposely found her in the thrift shop during the first days of her gestation. She had also surmised that she and the late Gemma Pearson had much in common. And so, Amber packed her children into the car and headed back towards the carnival circuit. As she drove along, singing aloud to Holes asking for it, she stole a peek at the rearview mirror. Gemma's spirit was hovering over the tiny freak, smiling wickedly and making the old ragdoll dance in midair. The baby, or babies, laughed, and Amber smiled. Her life would never be normal again. You've been listening to Oddity by author Megan J. Meehan. 
as performed by yours truly. Well, well. Amber certainly got what she always wanted in the end, didn't she? Not only will she never be called ordinary, but she'll never need to travel to take part in a family reunion either. How convenient. <laughs> I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week, when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify, plumb from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's episode featured tales from the very talented Kevin David Anderson, G.V. Anderson, and Megan Meehan. Third Shift was presented courtesy of Kevin David Anderson, Anderson's debut novel, The Geeky Cult Zombie Romp, Night of the Living Trekkies, is a very funny, offbeat novel exploring the pop culture carnage that ensues when the undead crash a Star Trek convention. His latest book, Midnight Men, The Supernatural Adventures of Earl and Dale, was inspired by the short story Green Eyes and Chili Dogs, produced by yours truly, Jason Hill, and heard on my very own YouTube channel, and on the Simply Scary Podcast Season 3, Episode 6. Anderson's stories have appeared in over a hundred publications and on fantastic podcasts such as the Drabblecast, Pseudopod, the No Sleep Podcast, Horror Hill, and the Simply Scary Podcast. In addition, he's an active member of the Horror Writers Association and currently works in special education. For more information on him, visit KevinDavidAnderson.com It Grows Inside was brought to you courtesy of G.V. Anderson. Miss Anderson is a world and British fantasy award-winning writer of speculative fiction from the UK. Her short fiction has been published in such places as Strange Horizons, Fantasy and Science Fiction, Lightspeed, and Nightmare, and has also been selected for Best of British Science Fiction and year's best dark fantasy and horror. She lives and works in Dorset in the United Kingdom. For more information, visit her official website, gvanderson.com. That's G-V-Anderson, spelled G-V-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N.com. Or follow her on Facebook and Twitter to get her latest updates. Oddity was brought to you courtesy of Megan Meehan, a published author, poet, cartoonist, and produced playwright. She pens columns for the Great South Bay Magazine, HVY, Kids Skintha Blog, Entertainment Vine, and more. She is also a stop-motion animator and an award-winning abstract artist. Megan holds a bachelor's degree in English literature, a master's in communication, and is currently pursuing a PhD in Curriculum, Instruction, and the Science of Learning. She is an animal advocate and a fledgling toy, game, and shoe designer, a curator and art teacher as well as an artist. Megan is the founder of the Conscious Perceptualism Art Movement. She also designs and teaches online writing courses that result in each participant having their story published. Her first horror novella, Psychophant, was released in December of 2019 and is available now on Amazon.com. 
If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Thanks again for your support. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Upstart, for their support of this show. As a reminder, you can free yourself for the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart today. Just visit upstart.com hill to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com hill. Thanks again for considering our sponsor for your debt consolidation needs. Don't forget, when you support our sponsors, you help make this program possible, and that means a lot to us. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another dance with darkness, I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, If you feel scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you (laughs) to let it in. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshak. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshak. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com. 
If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.